Book Friday, and welcome to this week's Snowmageddon edition of Black Consumer News of Arkansas. We hope you are staying warm and safe as Little Rock tries to dig out of this win this week's winter storm. Black Consumer News is your very own digital news platform that offers our readers and listeners the top headlines and stories affecting Black consumers in Arkansas and the U.S. If you haven't already, go check out our new website, blackconsumernews.com, where we post the top news stories impacting Black consumers in Arkansas and across the nation. As Arkansas's only Black-owned online news startup, our goal is to be your daily online newspaper and multimedia platform. I'm your host, Angel Burt, Black Consumer News Chief Creative Officer and Co-Producer of the show. I also want to introduce our co-host, Wesley Brown, Black Consumer News Publisher and exec Executive Editor. Wes is a longtime financial and political reporter at the Arkansas State Capitol and publisher of the Daily Record Business Journal in Little Rock. How you doing, Wesley? I'm doing great. And these guys, uh, uh, I hope you guys are reading the new edition uh, the newly uh, kind of reconfigured edition of the Daily Record. This is our legal business journal in the city. Uh, we're doing some good good things. Actually, I'm going to be, be we've got a reporter working on stories about, you know, the black legal community in Arkansas. So I'm going to be reaching out to both of you when I, when we do that story. And uh, because I, I uh, uh, kind of trying to bring the Daily Journal back to its roots of, of being a, a, a legal publication for the and the real estate community. So, uh, so I hope you both are subscribers. If not, uh, I'm gonna come come make you subscribers. So. Uh, and, and, and Wesley's actually speaking to our guest today, um, two young top attorneys here in Little Rock, um, yeah. Kendra Collins and Max Sprinkle. For the next hour, we are going to talk with them about their legal careers, of course, uh, about our top Black consumer news headlines in Arkansas and the nation. I want to introduce them to you first. Uh, Max Sprinkle brings years of entrepreneurial experience and creative problem solving into the legal world. Before starting a law practice, Sprinkle founded and operated small businesses in Pine Bluff and Little Rock, Arkansas. He has now set up his law shingle in the city under the namesake Sprinkle Law Firm. Some of his interesting work includes handling cases involving civil litigations, defense, civil rights claims, and appeals in Arkansas court and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. But some of the nonprofits that he works with is Community Unlimited, Unlimited, uh, the W. Howard um, um, Herald, wow. W. Herald Law Society, and the local first Arkansas. Wow, I got that out, Max. You do, you do way too much. I, I had to go through that. Okay? <laughs> and then we also have Kendra Collins. He's a native of Osceola, Arkansas. Works Osceola in the house. Osceola in the house. He works on the front line of the criminal justice system as a criminal defense attorney. He lives in Little Rock, Arkansas and obtains his um, degree in economics from UALR. He has served on the governor's law enforcement task force addressing issues on policing in our state. He's an active board member of the Dunbar Historic Neighborhood Association and the New Leaders Council. All right, welcome both of you. Long, long resumes. I'm telling very <laughs> impressive resumes. They are. They are impressive young men. All righty. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here today. So let's, let's, let's get started with just this week. 
Um, Black Consumer News reported um, that the top U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and U.S. banks are making multi-billion dollar commitments to Black communities across America. These commitments range from addressing police reform and inequalities in the judicial system to focusing on wealth building, home ownership, and advancing Black employees and executives in the workplace. From your points of views, where should this money do the most good? Mm. Uh, I won't start with, let's start with Kendrell since he's an economics major. You know, that, that's what I want to be. I, I'm, a, I'm a bootleg economist, so we're going to start with Kendrell. They're making billions of dollars of dropping. Every, all these companies have been announcing these billions of dollars they're dropping in the black communities. Where do you think this money will do the most good and what would you like to see it do? Um, you know, when I, when I look at just the, the facts of where we are right now economically when it, as it relates to black people in America, uh, you, you look at the, the racial wealth gap, you look at where we are and it's gonna take a lot of things. I don't think that there's any single solution um, because the problems are so multifaceted. We gotta have solutions that, that match that. But I definitely think that supporting small business owners, particularly uh, black women, black men at the local level uh, being able to create grants, if that money were to um, be used to really buffer up those businesses and supply them with the different things that they need. I know Mr. Sprinkle probably has a lot more insight as, as, as it relates to being a business owner and what those needs are. But I think if you're going to have a strong middle class, if you're going to have a strong um, Black community, Black uh, black middle class in particular, you got to have that base of uh, business owners and, and you got to begin to to accumulate the wealth and, and the business owners are going to hire other people. They're going to be employers uh, and then you start, you know, feeding other families. So I think that's a good place to start. What about you, Max? I know you've, uh, you've been in on, on some discussions I've been on about the PPP and some of the Black businesses falling behind this, the, the COVID's gonna even make that the gap that Kendrell talked about even larger. So where where should this money go and, and, and is it enough? Yeah, so, um, you know, I have an entrepreneurial background before my law background. And so um, I definitely agree that, that entrepreneurs um, should be a priority. Um, there are, are lots of things and you mentioned some of the meetings that we've been in, and I know that we also have have um, crossed paths with with Benito, who does some things with black entrepreneurship. And, and, and so I think that there's lots of ways that money can be given to black entrepreneurs. I specifically think that that really micro enterprises is where you can make a lot of change targeting really, really micro enterprises targeting um, young people's enterprises, businesses for people as young as teenagers, I think you can do a lot of good if, if uh, I'm not gonna say everybody tried to start a business, but everybody who, who thought that they wanted to start a business, um, tried to start a business at an early age when you have room to fail, when, when the business itself doesn't cost that much, seems like um, an area that, that can make a lot of impact, but also um, the juvenile justice system and and uh, I have an organization that I that I'm working on there, but but really, you know, uh, my 
experienced in the juvenile justice system, which is somewhat recent within the past uh, two years that I really started learning the juvenile justice system. And although there, there's been lots of money put there, there's, there's you know, lots of studies, you know, when I'm in it, it feels like nobody's really trying to do anything different. And so I think that, that if people can, can put some money into some innovative programs there, I think that that would help. You, and and, why, and why do you think that the, the, the banks are showing up now? Banks like U.S. Bank, J.P. Morgan Chase. Why do you think they're showing up now? Is it too little, too late? So <laughs> I'm jumping in just just because not that I, I not that I have any insight on why they're doing it now, but, um, you know, lots of mainstream businesses that um, shunned, you know, trying to, to, I don't know, look too black or affiliate too closely with with black causes, you know, had some sort of awakening this summer, it seems like. And it might just be that they feel that their their customers can take it better now or that their customers want it more now. But um, I mean, I, I think that that is probably part of that. Um, and I don't know if it's ever too little, too late. I mean, it's definitely not, you know, the, the world's problems are not going to be solved by the banks giving a, a fraction of, of their money away. But yeah. um, I mean, I, I think that uh, that is a good thing that, that they're on the bandwagon. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, they have three trillion in assets. So, you know, one billion is, is, is a small amount of, of, of money that they're throwing. You, you mentioned that 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 issue of, you know, the awakening this summer. And I know you talked about being, I, I know the work that you're doing with, with, with the pre-entry and the prison system and, and our, and our young men, men that look like you and me and, and Kendrell that, 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 you know, that, that the system has failed. And I know Kendrell, you was named to the governor's task force to, to take a look at some of those issues. And some of those recommendations were made before the legislative session. Tell us about that process and, and what are some of the recommendations that, that came out of that, that process? And do you think it was a, a good process to be in? And will you do you think it will go further? Well, I'll start with just how the process went. Uh, as you know, there was a collection of people on that task force. There's a lot of law enforcement, people with law enforcement background, uh, several people from the community, people with legal background like myself and, and just general uh, people who are out in the community doing um, activist type of work. And and so obviously when you have these people coming with these different worldviews and perspectives, you, you ran, we ran into a lot of uh, moments of tension, a lot of moments of like misunderstanding or, you know, sometimes I, I think there was unwillingness to really try to understand on, on different parts. But as the, as the uh, weeks and the months progressed, you, you start to see those barriers start to come down and we, we kind of came to agreement on some of the solutions. A lot of the solutions that uh, myself and other people may have put forth didn't make it to the final uh, written recommendations. And people can go online and see those recommendations. I mean, yes. it's like an 80-page like okay. document, you know, uh, and you can go to the governor's website. But there is, I think there's an express kind of a Sparks Notes version. Uh, some of the key areas that, that we really wanted to focus on, um, obviously training, we know that training is not a, you know, it's not a 
silver bullet doesn't well you know not to use the silver bullet phrase but uh it, it's not a, it's not gonna it's not gonna solve all the problems um but but when you look at the requirements for training for law enforcement officers right now in arkansas uh as it relates to like racial competency and things like that uh, out of the i believe it's 24 hours there's only two mandatory as it relates to race and so you have to begin to create some level, basic level of uh, cultural competency, un understanding these type of things. As If you're going to be an officer operating within um, communities that you may not be from, particularly white officers in the Black community. So uh, we got some recommendations about increasing that number uh, of required training. Some of the stuff that we did requires actual laws uh, to be put forth by the legislator, trying to get those um, body cameras, um, Mr. Sprinkle, I'm sure is familiar with the fact that if you're representing, if you're doing criminal defense, you run into a case where you, for some reason, they don't have any body camera. And so we're not able to get a full picture of what's happened in the case. And then really, you know, you're not able to get a full justice because there's not a real accounting of what happened. And a lot of times there's a deference to law enforcement uh, for obvious reasons. And, and so it can hurt the client. Sometimes it can um, help the client. But but at the end of the day, it's usually going to be better for law enforcement and for the, uh, the person who's, whose case it is for you to have some type of video evidence. So that was one of the recommendations. I noticed that that's a bill that came up recently by one of the legislators, and he cited uh, the law enforcement task force. There's a whole, I could go down a whole list, but the, you know, that's a couple of them. Okay, very good. Um, um, Wesley, did you have a question? Yeah, I, I just think, you know, uh, and I think uh, uh, Kendrell mentioned that task force recommendation, go to the governor's website, uh, that, that, uh, uh, that paper is out there, the report, the list of recommendations and the work that they did. As he said, some of those, those recommendations are, are coming up through the legislature right now, but also there's a, there's a whole wave of other bills at the legislature that will simply almost erase uh, uh, some of the things that that, that, that task force recommended. We'll get into that later. And I did want to ask one question, Kendrell. Um, when you talk about the task force, you mentioned that there was moments of tension um, when you initially um, got started. Why do you think that tension was there within the group, um, within the task force group that was chosen? I think most of it came from um, a lack of um, personal experience, uh, per particularly when you have... Um, when you're talking about issues dealing with the black community uh, and then you add on top of that um, people who are in law enforcement and there's you know this historical um, kind of divide between law enforcement and the black community so you you have those dynamics at play you have a lot of people who come from backgrounds where they don't see that's not their reality they, they their whole perception of law enforcement is is 100 positive uh, and so when you put when you put something new uh in front of them sometimes it, it can be met with a lot of resistance um also it, because it causes those people who are in those positions of power who may be in law enforcement have to change. And obviously we know that uh, typically people don't, don't like change. It's uncomfortable. Um, and it's, it's often comes with you giving up uh, uh, something. And so I think that's where a lot of the tension came from. But, you know, I think uh, that we have those moments of, of discomfort 
you know, because you, you mentioned it, as, as Angel alluded to, you, it was initial, then you work through it. You know, we don't get to go through that process often in the corporate world or in, in other settings, in my business, in the media. I, I'm generally always been the first one, the first black. And when you have those situations where you're forcing those issues, there's always that level of discomfort that you have to face first. And then work in, and some of the people I've had those discomforts, we have great relationships now because we work through that. And they were able, I was able to see their perspective and they were able to see mine. So I think that was important for you to be in that process and, and see how that played out and, and get to work through some of those issues. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree completely with that. Um, actually, uh, and speaking of discomfort, there's another story that we've been uh, uh, that we rolled out uh, about the COVID-19 vaccine by the Biden administration, including Arkansas's uh, three-phase distribution and and uh, vaccination. Uh, our exclusive story looked at the distrust that the Black community has concerning the COVID-19 in healthcare and the efforts um, to ramp up, um, you know. That, that the mistrust in the black community as far as the vaccine is concerned. Um, what are some of the things um, that you've been hearing from you know, some, of, some of your clients, colleagues, and even yourself about that mistrust? Max? Um, so are, are I- you gonna get, uh, Are you gonna get a shot? That's what she asked. <laughs> <laughs> Bottom line. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I may so so you know I definitely understand the the, the distrust um, and I, I mean I understand the the historic roots of the distrust. Also, you know not everybody gets um, you know the flu vaccine. Not everybody gets a lot of these vaccines anyway. Not everybody takes Tylenol when they have a headache. And so I, I think that that there's one level of of some historic distrust from the black community. Um, or in the black community that that is certainly warranted. Um, there's also, you know, understandable, you know, distrust about a vaccine that was created in a few months um, under the 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 you know Trump administration. Um, you know, all of those things, you know, are I think are legitimate. But then I think that when you add to that the idea that some people don't take a bunch of medicine anyway, I mean, I think that there's going to be some hesitance, but. Um, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll see the numbers. I, you know, it looks like that that everything might might work out fine. Yeah, Kendrell, uh, what are you hearing from your peers? Well, um, I think it's 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 a complicated thing, and and Mr. Sprinkle got at some of that complication. On the one hand, like I'll say first and foremost, I have had COVID, so I realize like how serious it is, and yeah. I realize how how bad it it can get. Uh, I've lost, you know, family members to it. And, and so I understand that, you know, on a personal level, and I know not everybody um, is is that close with it. It's, it can sometimes feel like something far away. Uh, I will definitely, um, when it's my time, get it. Uh, and I've encouraged my family members to get it in light of, you know, how it affected me. But at the same time, I also know that before I got it, my feelings were a little bit different. Uh, and, and some of my family members and peers and friends uh, still feel a certain hesitancy, which, I mean, is completely understandable, particularly um, in the Black community. And I think it goes at a larger issue of why is there that distrust? Because um, it's not just a matter of, 
we know all the historical reasons and, and ways that you know uh, black people have been at the wrong end of um, these these type of medical um, things like that. But it's also just a a, a little bit of a lack of risk. Of, of trust in government in general. And I think that that has something to do with um, the need for leaders who are gonna be able to really step up and create and rebuild that trust. It's not something that can just happen overnight. Um, and, and there's the issues with, you know, in one year having a vaccine produced, you know, there's there's all kinds of just basic concerns that not just black people have, but all people have with it. Uh, you got to every person's got to make that individual decision whether um, the the pros outweigh the cons and whether they should take it. But um, there's just so many reasons why different people uh, may be unwilling to take it. So I mean, from my perspective, I I I probably will when as soon as I can. Well, and, and I like uh, what you said, Kendrell, as far as individual decision. And I equally like what you said, Max, as far as some people take the flu shot and some people don't. Some people use Tylenol, some people don't. And it should be the individual's decision. Now, where I think people may be thinking uh, on the lines of some sort of, um, you know, conspiracy or, or something's not quite right is if we're going to be forced to take a vaccine. So hopefully that will not be the case at all. And that, um, you know, people are following, you know, the guidelines to keep themselves protected. Um, because again, as Kendrell said, our, our families, um, a lot of us, our family and ourselves have been affected by the, the COVID-19 um, um, virus for sure. Wes, do you have anything you want to add to that? I think he's on mute. He is. As a... Um, what I was saying was that COVID has really dominated our lives for the last year. You know, uh, in March of, of 2020, March 11th was the exact day that the WHO declared COVID a, a global pandemic and it has dominated our lives. We're... We're on this, on this call, this Zoom call, maybe because of the snow, but you know, but, uh, but the uh, COVID has, has forced us into being, living in a virtual world and we've all changed our lives. So I wanna ask, ask you guys, how in the legal community, how has it affect your work? How does it affect your ability to, to go out and, and do your job uh, uh, as a, uh, uh, I know my, uh, uh, Kendrell, my, my niece is a federal judge in Indianapolis. And she, uh, a magistrate judge, and she is doing cases from home. You know, <laughs> you know, so uh, you know that's just weird. You know, just kind of weird dynamic. They, she said, uh, I, I was listening in one time, and people said, "Oh, she, the said all rise while she was at her home." You know, so that's just weird to me. So tell me how it's affected your uh, your 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 uh, lifestyle and your your legal work. Yeah, I can say a few things. First, um, it's had positive and negative effects for everybody. I think for me, um, in, in, in the legal system, uh, from the attorney perspective, it's made some things a lot easier. You can do things from your home. I've had, a, you know, a ton of um, virtual hearings and conferences uh, from home. Uh, the jails have in a lot of ways kind of come into the 21st century, at least some of them across Arkansas, where you they've adapted to allow you to be able to do uh, video calls. We've got uh, different video conference uh, machinery set up 
uh, across the, the state and in our office. Uh, it's freed up a lot of time that you might have been traveling back and forth uh, from court to work or from um, different facilities across the state uh, and making things a little bit more efficient. But at the same time, uh, the negative effect is what it what it means for people who are in the system, um, our clients who, who, for the most part, COVID has done nothing but make the whole uh, incarceration experience more stressful than it may have been already. Otherwise, I mean, mm-hmm. also for, for their families. Um, and, and even though it may be easier for, you know, someone like me as an attorney to communicate with them, uh, it's still just as difficult um, if you're someone on the outside, a family member trying to speak to your family, um, and just the psychological and, and the mental health um, strains that it has when you know that your family could get sick, somebody could die, and you know, you, or, or just be sick and you can't be there for them. Uh, I, you get a lot of those um, concerns and worries and fears from the families and from um, the person who may be in jail. So that, that's another negative impact. How's it how's it impacted you, Max? Um, so similar, um, and and in the juvenile justice system specifically, um, you know, being incarcerated uh, or or being detained um, definitely you know is an unpleasant experience, and and sometimes it, it, COVID can make it more unpleasant. One positive thing is that. Um, during when, when COVID initially first kind of started happening in Arkansas, there was a deliberate push to reduce the number of, of juveniles incarcerated. Um, and, and I think that even, even with, with adult detainees, there was a push to not unnecessarily expose people to, you know, to the, the, the confined setting and not expose the confined setting to new people. And so there, there have been people who might have been arrested and detained um, in 2019 who were not in 2020. Um, and, and so I think that, that that's, that's a positive flip side to that. And definitely there are all the downsides. Um, I think that initially judges were really reluctant to, um, to do virtual, you know, courts kind of halted for a second because everybody was used to, you know, coming in, you know, the courtroom and, and, you know, having just this big showing and, you know, sometimes judges, there, there were ju- there are judges who, who demand to see a defendant in a criminal defense case, for example, every time there's a court hearing, and it's kind of like, that's a big thing. And now it just doesn't happen. You know, I mean, I've, you know, it's defendants that normally would have to make their way to court and, and, you know, they're calling in, driving to Walmart or something, you know, and, 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 you know, we're all doing, doing virtual. So um, it's, it's made things different, uh, maybe more, maybe more lax. I don't know. Um, um, but, but also it's made harder to, to, to miss court. So when this weather first started, um, I had a court hearing set up and, you know, in normal times, that hearing would not have happened. And, and, and you know, some hearings still happen, even with the weather. So so it changes it in that way, too, that, that you know, um, the same way, I guess, the kids are, are missing snow days. Um, sometimes the court is, is missing snow days, too. So do you, do, do you think that things will stay um, more technology driven or do you think things will go back to normal? And which one do you prefer? Um, I think that technology is going to 
um, replace some things. There's some things that just were unnecessarily cumbersome and, and technology I think is gonna have a place there. Um, and then there are some areas where technology is just more efficient, like not having to miss some hearings just because everybody can't get there. Um, but, you know, there's some things about, you know, good old fashioned um, days, you know, uh, you can't go into a courtroom and negotiate with the prosecutor um, as well through Zoom. Um, and, and then I've not done a jury trial yet um, over Zoom, but it just seems like it'll be weird to really gauge witnesses um, doing it virtually. Now, I did have a, an Eighth Circuit argument over over Zoom, or actually it was over an, another video conferencing uh, platform. And and I, at first I hated the idea because normally when I'd argue before the Eighth Circuit, I got to go to St. Louis and make a big deal out of it. And it just seemed like I was doing something. And I was like, you know, I'm just gonna sit in the office and talk to them on the video. It's not gonna be the same, but it turned out to be a lot better because I could have my notes on the screen and, and you know, look up cases in the middle of the, you know, of, of the, the, the argument. And I'm still looking at the judges while I'm doing all this cheating. And so um, I, I think that that part actually is, is pretty good. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I don't like going over. I hope it goes back to virtual because I'd be able to do things like uh, this and, and because I, you know, a couple of times I snuck my recorder into the federal courthouse over there, and and uh, uh, and and I let it go off <laughs> doing doing one of the cases. That that was when the uh, and, and Kendra, Kendra, you may be. I know your your office kind of worked on this when the when executions were going on, and I was covering those uh, some of those hearings over there, and and uh, you know just getting into the. Uh, uh, a federal courthouse downtown is, is can be, uh, you know, uh, uh, for, for me, it's a chore. You know, I want to bring the tools of the trade into that, in there, but, but, but now it's, it's almost impossible. So virtual, being able to, to do things sometimes virtual allow me to, like you said, look at my notes, you know, see what's going on, you know, and, and keep up with that. So uh, as you both said, I do think virtual world, part of that's going to remain, you know, uh, but, but, you know, there is something about seeing the whites of people's eyes when you talk to them in the interview and, 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 and things. So I, I think we're going to have kind of a hybrid once that happens. So, I, I, yeah, thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask this next question. Um, as you guys know, Wes is a, a longtime Capitol reporter, and he's been covering the recent debate on the Stand Your Ground Bill and the Project 1619 Bill, which deals with the teaching of Black-centric uh, curriculum. Uh, Senator Jim Hendren, who just left the Republican Party and getting ready to try to push the hate crime bill through the GOP's uh, supermajority. What is your impression on uh, of, of one of what one person testifying at the Stand Your Ground Committee um, uh, bill said uh, that it was mean spirited? It was a mean spirited bill aimed at hurting Black people. So, what was your impression? What would be your impression on that? What was your impression on that? I should say. And some of the and, and several of the bills that are up there now. There's a lot of a lot of those kinds of bills that are voter rights and things of that nature. Yes. All right. Um, so this obviously, you know, to the listeners, this is not the first time that uh, the attempt to pass the stand your ground bill has been made. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems to come back every every session. Uh, there was a lot of opposition to it. In fact, there was um, 
I remember right before one of the uh, one of the meetings, committee meetings, there was uh, a weekend where a lot of people went out and had a press conference. Um, Harold Flowers Law Society was one of them, and I was out there, and there was you know a, lot, a wave of really opposition to it, and and people wonder like why is that? Um, and one of the reasons is you you can just look at the numbers, look at the research. Um, it pretty much shows that states withstand your ground laws, uh, homicides, where there's a, a white shooter who kills a black victim, usually deemed justifiable more times and more fre- frequently when the situation is reversed. And so mm-hmm. and, and there's a host of other reasons. Um, and, and so what this law would do, the senior grant would eliminate that duty to retreat that's currently uh, required under the law. Uh, when using force, before using force in nearly um, all cases. And so what you, what many people believe would likely happen is that you're going to see more deaths uh, from gun violence and you're going to see homicide rates increase. Um, And so based on the research, that seems to be what happens. Uh, And so, um, you know, that was my first time hearing that comment. I might have to hear it again to fully understand it, but uh, I, I know that it's not it's not new to to Arkansas as an attempt to get past. It's not new to the United States. We know um, Florida, of course, and, and many other states that have these type of laws. Um, different people have different views, uh, whether you're a gun owner or not. Um, that different people kind of fall on different sides, but I, I definitely um, is not one that I I support personally uh, because I, I even as a gun owner. Um, the the existing gun laws have their place and and really are sufficient. All right, great, Max. What what, what is your opinion on that? Um, uh, I I agree with Kendrell, and um, you know, the the studies they show that that or they suggest that that homicide could increase. Um, the thing is, that's the only reason for a stand your ground law. Um, the, the current laws allow people to defend themselves. Um, and the duty to retreat doesn't mean that someone has to, you have to turn your back to a shooter and, and run away, which some, sometimes people who, who are proponents of stand your ground laws create, you know, uh, suggest unreasonable scenarios like that where you're putting your life at risk. Well, current self-defense laws allow someone who believes that their life is at risk to defend themselves. So the only reason you could want a law that says that you don't have to need to kill the person and you can kill them anyway is to kill more people. It's, it's the only effect of, of such a law. And, it's, and it, it is the reason for the law. It, it, it is a, um, uh, a law that helps people who want to feel power over other people feel more power over those people. And therefore, you know, the, the statistics that show results that are consistent with that, you know, that that's the only thing that could be. This is the only reason for the law. Yeah, uh, Max, one of the things, and I'll, I'll let our, our listeners out there know, even though that bill uh, was killed in the 2019 session when Senator uh, Stephanie Flowers went viral across the nation explaining exactly what the fear that, that many of us feel, uh, that bill, even though it was killed, could still come out of committee because there's a trick that that is uh, rarely used and it's 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 uh, uh, against 
actually it's against etiquette to, to pull it out of committee and bring it straight to the floor. But that may happen in, in the upcoming week. And, and so uh, I would encourage those listeners. We, we've been talking about this and I was really excited to see uh, the number of people, despite COVID, come up and, and testify against that bill. Because as, as Ken Jarrell noted, there's 23 states have passed these laws. Uh, and we know, even as a black gun, gun owner, myself also, as a former Marine, they don't work for me, <laughs> you know. There's black people that have tried to use the stand your ground bill and the judge have uh, very few of those cases that have been won. So uh, uh, there's a lot of issues that go with these things. And we have another one uh, that, as, as she mentioned, that's coming up that, that's a hate crime. I wanna get your guys uh, kind of comments on, on, on that because we are one of the few states that don't have a hate crime bill in the United States. Um, so uh, I think that that a hate crime uh, law, I mean, it's 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 a good thing to have. It's good to have that extra um, level of deterrence. You know, I think I believe that that the proposed bill would add maybe twenty percent potentially to a sentence, and so um, that I, I think that that would be helpful. You, you know, I. And maybe I should, but I don't have really strong feelings about hate crime law. Actually, I, I believe that it's that it's a good thing to have, um, but I don't believe that someone who is about to break the law cares that much that if they hate somebody when they do it, then then you know they might have a slightly worse outcome. I think that there there are bigger problems that that we need to get at. But but I believe that a hate hate crime legislation is probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, we are in um, Black History Month, and uh, some people say it's, it's uh, Black History every month, but especially in February, I mean, we get an opportunity to really just remember and take pride in a lot of great African-American people that um, really have paved the way for a lot of us to be to where we are today. Matter of fact, I will say where we are today and uh, and honoring that in the month of February some, because sometimes we forget, but it's always a, a prideful time for a, a lot of people, including myself. Uh, what do you think about the 1619 bill wanting to not have a black centered curriculum uh, in our schools and, and why is such a bill uh, uh, even presented on, on our Senate floors these days? Indra? Um, I can't answer why it's being presented. I don't fully understand the, the rationale uh, that would push someone to uh, want to create a bill that, that limits the uh, teaching of, of Black history. Obviously, the 1619 Project is a um, project done by um, New York Times reporter, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, and and I, I guess um, a lot of the bill itself is sort of a reflection of uh, our lack of teaching the history, the, the fact that we haven't really taught it, not just to Black students uh, thoroughly enough, but to uh, the white students in the state. Because if we had, if it was fully understood, you wouldn't see uh, these type of attempts um, to, to kind of rewrite or recreate history uh, or to... Um, kind of suppress what, what we know is is the truth. Um, we wouldn't even have these situations, but I think uh, we, we need 
to have it really highlights. I'm glad that the energy has been created behind it uh, because we it shows that our lack in the education system of focusing properly on the history of African American people, um, you know, in particular, um, but but other groups that often get overlooked, Native American uh, people. And so when we when we really have more thorough curriculum, and I'm talking like not just you know in high school, but but at a very early age when we begin to to incorporate that into the curriculum, not just during February, but all throughout um, throughout you know your your K through 12 education will make a huge difference. Uh, I know that I don't recall ever having a class like an African American history class offered uh, in my hometown in, in, in Osceola, or I don't know that they existed in Mississippi County um, even in high school. And so that 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 gap uh, is is really unfortunate. I think we got to work uh, at the community level, but also like at the systemic level in education to make sure that we we discuss those things. Yeah, you you mentioned. Yeah, go ahead, Max. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that that you know there needs to be better uh, historical education about Black people, um, and and you know Black people weren't invented on the bottom of a slave ship. So I think that that it should you know go further than um, than that also because you know um, I, I think that that there's a big problem with developing pride in yourself you know as a person if you feel like that you started from the bottom and now you're you're here um and i think that there's a reason why um you know everybody knows about european history for thousands of years and and that you know movies and everything that talk about the glory of, of europeans is uh you know they're 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 present in everybody's mind and so i think that that teaching black history should do something similar, you know, with regarding the 1619 project, I don't think that any school in Arkansas teaches the 1619 project oh. right now. Um, so it's kind of a silly bill, but, you know, I, I think that that the bill was done to be consistent with, with silly language that was coming out of um, um, really, really extreme right-wing circles. Um, if, if you recall during the debate, Donald Trump, and Mike Pence both said that they reject the notion that um, the United States has a racist history, <laughs> which is is crazy. Um, you know that you know if if there was not that, there would have been no need for a civil rights act or lots of the things that happened. So you know whether you know they agree with the characterizations of the 1619 project or agree with some of the, 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 the Black Lives Matter positions, um, it is unequivocal that racism played a big part in American history. And um, I, I, I think that, that an attempt to try to, you know, act like that that's not the case is, you know, I, I can't think of a better word right now than silly um, because, of, you know, a, a, a better word might give that attempt too much respect. I, I think that that's really all it is. You know, uh, how wonderful. Um, you know, what, what was interesting about that debate, and 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 Kendrell, you mentioned it, uh, the discomfort level, the tension in that hearing, it was thick as a knife. You could cut it. Uh, I mean, I I uh, listened to that whole virtually. Uh, I was over at the Capitol, but they had, uh, you know, the, the reporters have a, a different area, but 
but the tension in that room and and uh, uh, and, and even the the presenter uh, uh, of the bill talked about how he faced you know racism <laughs> because of him introducing the bill. I thought that was ironic, you know, that he he started talking about I received these threats and I received all these racist people calling, uh, and it was like being called a racist was the worst thing that could it, could it, he could ever face. Uh, so, so uh, like you said, though that and several bills that he's also sponsoring a bill uh, that that deals with making it harder for us to vote. Uh, so, like one of the people who testified, many of those bills are mean spirited and just mm -hmm. aimed at us simply. Well, gentlemen, I think you both have did a tremendous observation and poetic, if, if you don't mind me saying, input on the 1619 um, bill. And it's understandable why both of you are so involved in the community, as well as um, creating organizations that really support all of the things that you guys just uh, pointedly uh, put in perspective. Uh, Max, I wanna ask you about the Break Free from Captivity pre-entry organization. Uh, that you um, just, is it just recently uh, evolving? And tell us more about that. Uh, so uh, pre-entry um, is, it comes from my observation about um, a lot of uh, talk about re-entry that, that, you know, maybe for the past 10 years has been a, a big focus. Even um, the current, you know, governor of Arkansas, really when he came in, he talked a lot about re-entry and um and you know one day i just really googled pre-entry <laughs> i was like you know why is everybody talking about what happens when you get out and i yeah. googled pre-entry and nothing came up related to criminal justice and and so you know uh, i just wanted to, to to focus on what happens um you know I, I think that that maybe there's a better chance to keep people um you know better acclimated to society you know, if they never go into incarceration or or they don't go into to longer, you know, longer term incarceration in the first place. And, and then, you know, right. over the past um, couple of years, I've been working in the juvenile justice system also. And so I work in the adult systems and, and the um, the juvenile system. And then I also deal with with um, um, with with civil rights in my in my private law practice. Um, but, you know, I realized that really a lot of the focus of keeping people out needs to happen when people are teenagers, because that's when a lot of uh, people are getting the wrong message about who they are as a person. Um, and 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 uh, so that's really what pre-entry does. It, 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 for one, it tries to bring those resources together. I know that lots of attorneys, judges, um, prosecutors, you know, defense attorneys, want to find um, diversionary programs a lot of time and, and, and find, you know, sometimes I have a, a client um, in my, you know, criminal defense uh, private practice and maybe that client has a drug problem and I'm trying to find something <clears throat> to tell the judge like, hey, you know, this person, you know, is, is a good person. This is not just a, a number. It's not just a, you know, criminal information. Um, this is a person. They're struggling with this they're getting it done. And, and sometimes there's, you know, I don't have, I don't know all the things that are out there. And so <clears throat> that's one thing that, that pre-entry does is um, it, it brings those things together. Um, and so there's a directory on the website, preentry.org. Um, and then also pre-entry has a little bit of programming itself that's uh, mostly targeting youth and trying to, to, 
you know, do things that, that are not happening right now and, and give youth um, something that really changes their their paradigm. You know, youth who who are in uh, a paradigm that that lets them do um, you know harmful things to themselves and to society, and help them move to a to a more accurate paradigm that really should reflect who they are. I'm excited about that 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 work that you're doing, and and uh, hope hope to get in help help and get involved with it. I'm a, I think it's great. Uh, Kendrell, you're also uh, involved in, in community work. Tell us about some of the things uh, uh, you, uh, you do some work with, with Angel in, in the community. But tell us about some of the things that you're doing and some of the some of your passions, uh, uh, not necessarily tied to the legal community, but if they, they, they may be, but what are some of your passions out there and things that you're doing in our community? Yeah, I love that um, idea and, and the concept that Mr. Sprinkle was talking about with the pre-entry and, and really that does have to be where our focus is, is, is really reducing the, the population in the first place, you know, kind of disrupting that pipeline that people talk about, school to prison pipeline. Uh, another thing we've, we've talked a lot in this conversation about um, in a roundabout way about leadership, about bills that have been passed. These are people who have been voted and elected into office. These are people who, um, you know, somebody had to go and cast a ballot for. And I think when you want change and you're trying to have a transformational change, you got to have uh, transformational leaders. So I've been working with this group um, that I actually I went through the fellowship last year. It's called the New Leaders Council. And it's national. Uh, but the first Arkansas chapter was started last year and there's about 20 of us who are fellows. And it's really about kind of creating uh, and cultivating the next generation of leaders, giving, giving uh, them the tools that they need in order to um, in order to really succeed and to thrive, whether it's in the nonprofit sector, the business sector, um, you know, e even even with running for office and giving you those tools, because oftentimes you feel like you're out there alone. Uh, so this year uh, I've been working with that group creating a curriculum basically uh, as, a, as a curriculum co-chair and basically giving, creating the framework, uh, bringing different people in uh, to, to give them the training that they need. Uh, obviously with uh, Dunbar Historic Neighborhood Association with Angel, we've been doing a lot of work um, around educating the community uh, as to what's going on, but also uh, preserving the, the history of, of that community. Dunbar is, has such a rich history um, many people that have influenced me that I didn't even know, you know, um, beforehand, even in law school, you know, hearing about uh, Scipio Jones and, and all these different people who had such an impact who, who were part of that community. Um, trying to put up some marker, we're going to be working. We have a lot of different uh, projects in the pipeline, but putting up markers, we, we talked this summer and I even did an op-ed about the monuments and how, you know, in, in many ways, uh, the monuments at the Capitol um, are are honoring dishonorable people, but what about actively uh, putting up our own markers, our own monuments to people that we do want to honor? Uh, so, so that's been a, a big project that we've been working on um, with the Dunbar Neighborhood Association. The other thing that I do um, is is just kind of kind of light, but it has a big impact, and it goes to that um, that issue that Mr. Sprinkle was talking about about attacking issues at the early stages, working with kids uh, at, at Mosaic uh, Church, what we do is have a chess club. And so, you know, once a week we do chess with the kids and, and you'd be surprised how how much like 
learning how to do a logical thinking, rational thinking game like chess can help kids in other areas like math and and uh, and reading and just critical thinking. And so it helps at an early age uh, kids to get involved uh, in other activities. So those are the things. Did you watch the Netflix movie? <laughs> yeah, Queen's Gambit. I did watch it. it oh, that is, that's good. a great, great movie. I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, so we, we are going to move. I'm going to let Angel take over now. We're going to move to our fun segment of this. I don't know if you guys are ready for it, but, but she's going to start it. So I am going to start this, right? Okay. This is um, your one-minute countdown hot seat, okay? So we're going to ask you a question. And you have uh, one minute, right, Wes? One, one minute. Whole, one whole minute um, to respond. <laughs> okay. And, and then the other has to counter <laughs> that response. So, and we're going to put it out on our social media site, on our website to see who is the <laughs> final winner. We got three questions now. So, uh, okay. Wes, I'm going to let you start with that first one. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, let's, let's see. Let, let's see what I'm going to throw out here. What is your favorite kitchen utensil? <laughs> Got one minute, Max, go. Um, <clears throat> and explain why. I'm gonna say an air fryer. Wow. And <laughs> 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 I mean, really, that's all I have to say because most people who have dealt with an air fryer um, know what it can do. And, and most people who, who don't have an air fryer, you know, have friends on social media that are, you know, putting pictures of this food that looks really good. You know, they don't even know how to cook, but, but they're making good looking food from the air fryer. And, and so, uh, um, I mean, I, 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 I think that that's, that's the best. Five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> Kendra. Okay, Kendra. <laughs> You're next. Wow, I hope, you uh, can top that. I hope you can top that. <laughs> Max took a good one. I, I would, I would object a little bit because you did say uh, utensil. I, I feel like an air fryer is a bit of a machine, but uh, <laughs> but I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, say my favorite utensil uh, is a spatula because I think about if I didn't have it. Uh, I mean, imagine if you were trying to make eggs without a spatula. I, I've had to do it before, uh, mm. but it is the worst mm. thing ever. Uh, if you're trying to make any type of breakfast too, flip, flip something on the stove, you got to have a special. That's one of the most essential things. Um, I, I do like the air fryer, but I, I feel like I couldn't couldn't get through. Uh, I, I, I know who's doing the cooking. We know who's cooking. We know who's cooking. Angel, your question now. Okay, who's your favorite NFL player? Oh. Or team. Go ahead, Kendra, you go first. Yeah. Um, who is my favorite NFL team? Um, I actually like uh, the Kansas City Chiefs a lot. Obviously, they didn't um, they didn't pull it through this year. But um, one reason I like them also is because they have the initials of my name, Kendra Collins. Uh, <laughs> that's why I originally. <laughs> That's why I originally liked them, um, and they're, they're they're the closest. They're pretty close in terms of uh, being close to Arkansas since we don't have a team. Uh, I like I like 
I like them a lot. Okay. I used to say that about Dallas, um, Kendrell, but that's a whole other conversation. Max? <laughs> uh, uh, Max? Okay. I don't know if I can top that only because, um, you know, when, when I started thinking about my favorite NFL player, I thought of Walter Payton. And that shows how out of touch I've been with football. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't know enough about any NFL team, but I know that the Buccaneers beat <laughs> so I'm gonna play it safe. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with the Buccaneers, um, just because they beat you know Kansas City. Um, so okay. I, I don't think I have any other reasons. Uh, okay, well I think we might be tied or we close. So here's the last question, Angel. You gonna you gonna throw it at him? You want oh me to? Goodness. I want you to do the honors, please. Okay, let me see. What, what if you had one million dollars and you could only spend it in one week and you had to do it on something good that didn't help you, what would you spend it on? Max? Um at one million dollars, I think that I would spend it on. Um, uh, I think I spend it on websites for uh, anybody who thought that they wanted to start a business. Um, you know, just just everybody who thinks they have an idea, I would pay to have them a website made, um, and then they, you know, if they don't do anything else, at least you know. At least they have some inspiration and, you know, something there. So. Right. And they can make some money from that website, right, Max? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right, Cringo, you, you, can, you can knock it out the park, and this is a, the last moment. So, uh, Well, fortunately, I had a little time to think about it. Uh, <laughs> I, would probably, I would probably spend the million dollars. If it didn't help me at all, I would give it uh, away to as many um, – law students, uh, black law students across the country as possible who were trying to uh, pay for tuition, knowing knowing how that expense can be. And also, you know, being one of the one of the only actually uh, black males in my graduating class, uh, knowing the need that we have for black people uh, in, in the legal field uh, and how important it can be, I probably would would spend my money on paying a bunch of people's tuition. All right. Well, that's all right. Thank you so much. I just want to just personally just take a moment to thank both Kendrell, attorney Kendrell Collins and attorney Max Sprinkle for coming on to Black Consumer News of Arkansas radio show um, this morning or now we're already in, getting ready to go into the afternoon. We certainly appreciate your, your insight, um, all the information that you've, you've shared. So articulately, and uh, you are invited to come back on any day at any time. Thank you both for being here. And remember to go to blackconsumernews.com 
and see all the stories and the things that we're talking about every day in our Absolutely. Community. And they can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on Black Consumer News and uh, News That Empowers. We'll be back here next week, God willing, from 11 a.m. until 12 noon. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And thank you again, Kendrell and Max. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Great show, guys. Turn that recorder off. <laughs> okay. It, it's, uh, uh, oh, less editing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm actually going to end the meeting, then we have to come back in. So. Oh, you're going to end it? Oh, okay, cool beans. Yeah.